This episode of Tales of True Crime contains adult language and graphic subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. It was just before 10 p.m. and on a street near San Francisco's famous Union Square, the street lamps bathed the neighborhood in a harsh orange glow. A taxi driver, Paul Stein, 29 years old and moonlighting as a cabbie while he pursued a doctorate at San Francisco State College, accepted a fare as the back door opened and a passenger entered. The passenger requested to be taken to the intersection of Washington and Maple Streets, a short ride of only three miles. Driver Stein set the meter in motion and set out for his passenger's drop-off location. Less than 15 minutes later, the taxi slowly cruised through the intersection of Washington and Maple Streets and proceeded one block further west to Washington and Cherry Street. Why, we don't know. Perhaps there wasn't a safe place to pull over and let the passenger out at the original destination. Or maybe the passenger directed Stein to continue a block further because there were too many people around who would see what he was about to do. The cab stopped and the passenger took out a 9mm handgun and shot Paul Stein behind his ear. A group of teenagers across the street heard something, some kind of commotion, although they would later say they didn't recall hearing gunshots specifically, and one of them ran inside to call police. The killer reached over the seat, tore loose a piece of the driver's shirt, freshly soaked with his blood, took his keys, his wallet, and emptied his cash box. One of the eyewitnesses reported seeing the killer wiping down the taxi before he exited the car and walked off into the night, heading north toward Jackson Street and the Presidio. The man who shot Paul Stein was described in differing terms by various eyewitnesses, but there were details on which they agreed. He was a white man with a crew cut, average height about 5'8 to 5'10, glasses with thick black frames, and a slightly heavy build. The killer did not know that two patrol officers were just two blocks away. As they approached the crime scene, one of them saw a man walking east on Jackson Street illuminated in the headlights of his squad car, and he matched the killer's description. Unfortunately, the patrolman, Officer Falk, did not know that because dispatch had given an inexplicably erroneous description of the suspect and the patrol officers thought they were looking for a black man. The suspect disappeared up a stairway into a hedge-lined walk to a street-side residence, and the patrolman continued to the crime scene at Washington and Cherry. It wasn't long before they realized their mistake, and the police officers who had responded to the scene fanned out in an effort to find the man who had been seen walking away from the scene of the crime. They would not find him. Paul Stein would be the serial killer's last confirmed victim, and only two days later, the killer would send the torn, bloody piece of Paul Stein's shirt to a local newspaper with a letter to prove his identity. With the shirt fragment, there was an admission. The killer had been hiding in the darkness of the Presidio that night, watching and listening, just out of sight of the police officers who had canvassed the neighborhood. It was Saturday night, October 11th, 1969 and it was the closest police ever got to capturing a killer who is still unidentified today, the Zodiac. 
This is the Tales of True Crime podcast. Episode 4, No Address, The Search for the Zodiac Killer. Dahmer, Bundy, Gacy, Berkowitz. The names of history's most frightening serial killers are well known. We've told their stories thousands of times in an effort to educate ourselves and take proper precautions. Monsters exist, and we must be prepared. Knowing their names gives us some sense of security. It's the killers whose names we do not know that still inspire the greatest fear. The monster is still out there, unidentified, waiting around a corner, in the bushes, in your closet when you turn out the light. And of those who remain unidentified, there are probably two names that come to mind more than any other. Jack the Ripper and the Zodiac. In the case of Jack the Ripper, we take solace in knowing that the killer, while never having faced justice, long ago passed from this world and will never harm anyone again. The Zodiac, however, could still be out there. A lesson we learned when the Golden State Killer was captured at the age of 73 in 2018. The Zodiac's murders took place less than a decade earlier, and based on descriptions and age estimates of the attacker by those lucky enough to survive, the killer could be long dead, but he could also be a mere 80 years old today, still unidentified, waiting and gloating proud to have escaped justice for this long. Most agree the first murders that can be convincingly attributed to the Zodiac are the killings of teenagers Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday on December 20th, 1968 in Benicia, California. The teenagers had gone to a Christmas concert in an AMC Rambler David Faraday had borrowed from his mother. The San Francisco Sunday Examiner reported Jensen and Faraday were shot with a small-caliber rifle after they parked on Lake Herman Road, a well-known lover's lane. David Faraday had been shot once in the head, and investigators believed Betty Lou Jensen had attempted to flee when she was shot five times in the back. According to the examiner's story, Faraday had exited the car, perhaps when he was ordered out by the killer, and had circled around to the passenger side door when he was shot. The examiner's story detailed a heel print found behind a brush-shrouded fence encircling a pump house, which suggested the killer may have hidden there prior to the attack. Robert Graysmith, a former political cartoonist for the San Francisco Chronicle who would later write two books about the Zodiac case, theorized an alternate series of events, which had the killer's car pulling in beside the teens and the killer ordering them out of the car. According to Graysmith's theory, Betty Lou exited the car first, and Faraday was shot as he was exiting, at which point Betty Lou fled and was shot five times in the back, approximately 28 feet from the car. The investigation revealed no sign of a sexual assault on Betty Lou. Just four days after their killing, on Christmas Eve, the Los Angeles Times reported police had questioned more than 40 people to no avail. 
David Faraday, 17, and Betty Lou Jensen, just 16, had been on their first date. Nineteen sixty eight gave way to nineteen sixty nine, and winter surrendered to spring, then summer. For more than six months, the killer was quiet, until Independence Day, nineteen sixty nine. It was just before midnight when Darlene Farron and Michael Maggiot, both nineteen, arrived in Vallejo's Blue Rock Springs Park which was only four miles from the site of the Lake Herman Road murders of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen. Just after they arrived, another car pulled in next to them and parked briefly before leaving. A few minutes later, the car returned, this time parking behind them. The killer exited his vehicle and approached the passenger side of Farron's vehicle, where Majot was seated. Without a word, the killer shined a flashlight into the car and began firing. He fired five shots, striking both victims, and was about to get in his car and leave when he heard moaning coming from the victim's car. He returned and fired two more shots into each victim, then left the scene. Darlene Farron would die of her injuries, but Michael Maggiot would survive despite gunshot wounds to his face, neck, and knee. He would become the first victim to give a description of the killer. A white man, 26 to 30 years old, with curly brown hair, approximately 5 feet 8 and heavy set. Darlene Farron had been a married woman, and according to a story in the July 6th edition of the Oakland Tribune, Police questioned her husband, but quickly eliminated him as a suspect. A fact not immediately known to the news media in the days after the attacks at Blue Rock Springs Park was that the killer had mocked police with a phone call only 40 minutes after the attack. The call had been placed from a phone booth about a four-minute walk from Darlene Farron's home and only a few blocks from the police station. The Long Beach Independent Press Telegram reported the caller said, I killed them. I used a 9mm. The caller also reportedly took credit for the murders of David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen just before Christmas, then hung up. The proximity of the phone booth to Farron's home would lead some to believe the killer may have lived in Farron's neighborhood or knew her in some way. The call left little doubt that the police were dealing with a serial killer. Less than a month later, the killer, seeking attention and emboldened by his ability to avoid capture, began to taunt the police with letters to the media and cryptograms or ciphers which needed to be decoded. In a letter to the San Francisco Examiner on July 31, 1969, the killer wrote, Dear Editor, I'm the killer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl last Fourth of July. To prove this... I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas 1. Brand name of ammo, Super X 2. 10 shots fired 3. Boy was on his back with feet to car 4. Girl was lying on right side feet to west 4th of July 1. Girl was wearing patterned pants 
two. Boy was also shot in knee. Three, ammo was made by Western. Here is a cipher, or part of one. The other two parts are being mailed to Vallejo Times and San Francisco Chronicle. I want you to print this cipher on the front page by Friday afternoon, August 1st, 1969. If you do not print this cipher, I will go on a killing rampage Friday night. This will last the whole weekend. I will cruise around killing people who are alone at night until Sunday night or until I kill a dozen people. There were possible clues in the letter's misspellings, such as the killer's tendency to spell Christmas with two S's at the end, and the word until with two L's. The newspapers to which the killer wrote published his letters, accompanied by their own stories and, in conjunction with police, cryptograms of their own containing messages to the killer. They urged the killer to continue his correspondence and offer more details. He was playing a dangerous game taking a chance at getting caught by continuing with his taunts, and the authorities wanted to keep it going. In response, the killer, who had up until that point been referred to as a mysterious killer or sometimes the mad killer, wrote another letter and gave himself the name we know today. Dear Editor, this is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your asking for more details about the good times I've had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leapt backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up in the back seat, then the floor in the back thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engine as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly so as to not draw attention to my car. The man who told the police that my car was brown was a negro, maybe 40 to 45 rather shabbily dressed. I was at the phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cops when he was walking by. When I hung up the phone, the damn thing began to ring, and that drew his attention to me and my car. Last Christmas. In that episode, the police were wondering as to how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied this by saying it was a well-lit night and I could see the silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. <laughs> what I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice, in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light about three to six inches across. Hmm. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use gun sights. Nevertheless, 
I was not happy to see that I did not get front page coverage. The letter was signed with what would become the Zodiac signature. A circle bisected with a cross, a symbol that resembled the crosshairs of a gun sight, and the words, no address. The Zodiac claimed when police were able to decode his cipher, his name would be in the message. It wasn't. According to the Palm Springs Desert Sun, August 13, 1969, a history teacher at an area high school, Donald Harden, and his wife Betty were the first to decode the Zodiac's first three-part cipher, despite a week-long effort by Navy and FBI codebreakers. The cipher, lightly edited for clarity, read as follows. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise, and the people I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name, because you will try to slow down or stop my collection of slaves from my afterlife. At the end of the cipher was an extra sequence of 18 letters which could not be deciphered. Many have speculated it's the Zodiac's real name, but the code of the final sequence has never been broken. On September 27, 1969, the Zodiac struck again. As the Long Beach Independent Press Telegram reported in October of that year, Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard, students at Pacific Union College, were picnicking at Lake Berryessa in Napa County. Hartnell would later recount to the Oakland Tribune how the couple had noticed a man walking along the beach behind them. I heard some footsteps behind me and I knew someone was walking along the shoreline. Cecilia Shepard watched as the man came closer. She was concerned a bit, Hartnell said, so I told her to tell me if he kept coming. He did keep coming, then stepped behind a tree and disappeared from view. Imagine your horror if you found yourself in Hartnell and Shepard's shoes, and after observing a man acting suspiciously, he reappeared from behind a tree, wearing a black executioner-style hood and a bib-type garment with an ominous gun sight symbol on the chest. The Zodiac approached the young couple, displayed a gun, and told a strange, almost corny tale about being an escaped prisoner who had killed a prison guard and stolen a car. The masked man demanded money, and Hartnell, in an attempt to keep the situation calm, made a joke about having less than 75 cents. I tried to keep the conversation as light as possible, but he still wanted to tie us up, Hartnell said, and thinking it was only a robbery, they complied. He put the gun away and I was relieved, Hartnell said. Then I turned over and faced the ground and waited for what would happen next. Then he started stabbing without a word of warning or anything. The killer savagely stabbed Brian Hartnell six times and Cecilia Shepard ten times with a 12-inch hunting knife. Hartnell would later say he never lost consciousness, 
but that it was about five minutes before he realized the killer was gone. He immediately went to work untying one of Cecilia Shepard's wrists with his teeth, and, bleeding profusely but still conscious, they began calling for help from passing boaters. The killer ventured to Knoxville Road, where Hartnell's car was parked, and on the driver's side door, he scrawled a message in felt-tip pen. Vallejo, 12-20-68-7-4-69, September 27th, 69, 6-30, by knife. Beneath, he left his calling card, the gun sight signature, a circle bisected by a cross. When the police discovered the markings on the car door later, it would leave no doubt that the Zodiac was responsible for the attacks on Jensen and Faraday, Farron and Majot, and now Hartnell and Shepard. A passing boater, suspicious of what was happening, waited offshore for about 15 minutes before deciding that Hartnell and Shepard's calls for help were genuine. He summoned the park rangers who called for police and an ambulance. In the meantime, the killer was making his getaway, but he was bold enough to stop at a payphone and, again, taunt the authorities with a phone call. I want to report a murder. No, a double murder. They are two miles north of Park Headquarters. They were in a white Volkswagen Carmen Gia. And I'm the one that did it. The killer didn't hang up the phone, choosing instead to leave it hanging from the payphone in the booth as he departed. The connection still live. Pat Stanley, at the time news director for KVON Radio, recalled in a 2007 piece for the Napa Valley Register. The Napa County Sheriff's Department wanted to find the phone and fast, so virtually any official with a radio was asked to help. This reporter jumped into action. After a brief stop at the Sheriff's Department, I drove north on Main Street. Driving past a car wash in the historic Sam Key Laundry Building, I spotted a payphone, but thought the call must have come from closer to the lake, nearly 30 miles away. At the last second, though, I swerved my car toward the phone booth and was shocked to find the receiver off the hook. Could this be the phone, I wondered? I used my own two-way to radio back to KVON where I instructed the on-duty DJ to call police. They, in turn, told me not to move until officers arrived. Suddenly, I wondered, if this was the phone, could the attacker still be in the area, perhaps watching me? It was a great relief when officers arrived and had me slowly back away so as not to disturb potential evidence. It was the phone. Napa County Sheriff's deputies had arrived at the crime scene and Cecilia Shepard was still conscious, but the ride to Queen of the Valley Hospital in Napa was more than 25 miles. Shepard lost consciousness on the ride and died two days later at the hospital. Hartnell survived his wounds and would give his account of the attacks to law enforcement and the media. That brings us back to where we began. 14 days after the Lake Berryessa attacks, the Zodiac murdered Paul Stein in his taxi in the Presidio Heights neighborhood in San Francisco. The suspect was seen leaving the scene by two teenage boys, ages 13 and 14, and they described him as a white man, crew cut, thick frame glasses, wearing a blue windbreaker style jacket with elastic cuffs, brown pants, and dark shoes. He was likely also covered in Paul Stein's blood. 
San Francisco police patrolman Don Falk would write a report detailing his near miss with the suspect. Lightly edited for clarity, it read as follows. I respectfully wish to report that while responding to the area of Cherry and Washington streets, a suspect fitting the description of the Zodiac Killer was observed walking in an easterly direction on Jackson Street and then turned north on Maple Street. This subject was not stopped as the description received from communications was that of a Negro male. When the right description was broadcast, reporting officer informed communications that a possible suspect had been seen going north on Maple Street into the Presidio, the area of Julius Kahn Playground, and a search was started which had negative results. Officer Fauk's physical description of the suspect largely matched the description given by the teenage witnesses at the scene and also extended to his demeanor. Subject at no time appeared to be in a hurry, walked with a shuffling lope, slightly bent forward, head down. The subject's general appearance to classify him as a group would be that he might be of Welsh ancestry. Police reports detail the search that followed the near miss with the subject as extensive, with squad cars, motorcycle, and dog units participating in the search. Two nights later, on October 13, 1969, the Zodiac sent another letter to the San Francisco Chronicle. Mrs. Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a blood-stained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The San Francisco police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. If the killer was telling the truth, he had been hiding in the darkness that night, watching as the police searched for him. Many believe the attack on cab driver Paul Stein was an attempt by the killer to change his methods. Up until that point, he had been a lover's lane murderer, in the same vein as the phantom killer of 1946 in Texarkana. The change of tactics may have been intended to confuse authorities, make his crimes less predictable, and inspire terror. And if it was his intention to inspire terror, that's what the Zodiac did with the closing paragraph in his letter to the Chronicle. Schoolchildren make nice targets. I think I should wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tire and then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. The Zodiac never made good on his threat to take out a school bus, but he did incite panic in the masses with the bluff. Law enforcement spent months escorting school buses in California. Busing companies issued strict instructions to their drivers. If a tire should go flat, drivers were instructed to keep the bus moving at all costs until they could radio for a police escort. The killer, who found media attention so pleasing, must have enjoyed it very much. The killer who called himself the Zodiac has never been identified, and the story of his deeds goes much deeper than the story I've told you here. There are theories that the Zodiac started his sick career long before the killings of Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday with the murder of Sherry Jo Bates in 1966 at Riverside Community College. 
And there is substantial evidence that the Zodiac continued to be active after the murder of Paul Stein. Someone claiming to be the killer threatened to blow up a school bus with a bomb. A San Bernardino resident claimed to have been abducted by the Zodiac during a road trip to visit her mother. Journalist Paul Avery, who covered the Zodiac case extensively, occasionally received correspondence from someone claiming to be the Zodiac. Many of those communications were taken seriously and deemed authentic through handwriting analysis. You can go as deep as you like into the crimes of the Zodiac with a simple internet search. It should be noted, however, after the Paul Stein murder, the investigation into the Zodiac took something of a tabloid turn. The crimes of the madman had so captured the public's imagination that hoaxes started becoming a regular occurrence, and sensationalism became the order of the day. Fake letters and media coverage of dubious validity. There was a TV talk show appearance in which a man claiming to be the Zodiac called in to talk live with the hosts on air. A call later deemed to be from an incarcerated mental patient. Talk show hosts and newspaper editors believed they could drive ratings and sales with stories about the Zodiac at every opportunity. It soon became difficult to tell fact from fiction. Eventually, correspondence from the Zodiac tailed off. And despite boxes of physical evidence, crime scene reports, fingerprints, a palm print from the dangling payphone receiver discovered after the Lake Berryessa attacks, and reams of letters to the local media, the leads dried up. The killer who called himself the Zodiac vanished. That's not to say there weren't suspects. Perhaps the best-known suspect was a man named Arthur Lee Allen. About ten days after the attacks on Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard at Lake Berryessa, police interviewed Arthur Lee Allen. He had been in the area the same day and claimed to have been scuba diving. He wore a Zodiac brand wristwatch. The emblem on the watch was a circle bisected by a cross. He lived and worked just minutes away from Darlene Farron, the victim in the Blue Rock Springs attack, where the post-crime phone call was made from a payphone near her home. Allen was a convicted sex offender. He was sometimes described by acquaintances as being angry at women and never married. Circumstantial evidence notwithstanding, none of the physical evidence ever matched Allen. His fingerprints and palm prints didn't match. His handwriting didn't match. Arthur Lee Allen didn't wear glasses. When he had hair, it was black, not brown. And at the time of the Lake Berryessa attacks, a police detective who interviewed Allen said he was bald. DNA evidence gathered from one of the Zodiac's letters was tested in 2002 using the technology of the day and yielded a partial DNA profile. Authorities concluded it was not a match for Allen. Even if it had been, Arthur Lee Allen would have escaped justice. He had died of a heart attack in his home in Vallejo 10 years earlier, in 1992. There were other suspects over the years, many of whom were named by their own family members or friends. A retired military man, a blue-collar worker with a brain disorder due to a car accident, a newspaper editor, a merchant mariner, even a member of the Manson family. None were ever conclusively connected to the Zodiac murders. And there are so many questions left unanswered. Nobody truly knows why the killer called himself the Zodiac. There are theories that he timed his attacks to coincide with astronomical events. 
Nobody knows for sure what the zodiac symbol actually means. Most describe it as resembling the crosshairs of a gun sight, but others claim it's a Celtic rune. And there are other theories too. And there are those who claim the prime suspect, Arthur Lee Allen, was not excluded by physical evidence. That his DNA didn't match because he had others lick stamps and envelopes for him. That his handwriting didn't match because he was ambidextrous and would sometimes write with his non-dominant hand. Again, it's all available with a simple internet search for anyone who wants to go deep. Where does that leave the status of the investigation into the Zodiac? Even five years ago, I would have said the hope for resolution in the Zodiac case was dim. But that was five years ago. Today, the entire field of forensic criminology has been upended when it comes to cold cases thanks to an incredibly promising new technique, genetic genealogy, a tactic by which law enforcement can upload DNA from an unknown suspect to a public genealogy database, search for ancestors with matching DNA, then identify the perpetrator by building out a family tree until they find a suspect that lived in the right place, match the description of the suspect, etc. The tactic has been used hundreds of times already, with amazing success, bringing to justice killers nationwide, including Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer who terrorized Northern California for more than a decade. In 1967, a 20-year-old Seattle woman, Susan Galvin, was found raped and strangled in a parking garage elevator. In 2019, police identified her killer, Frank Whippich a former military man from Seattle who died in 1987. To date, it is the oldest, coldest case to be solved by genetic genealogy, 52 years after the crime. In May of 2018, Vallejo police said they were beginning a new effort to analyze the Zodiac's DNA, to include an effort at genetic genealogy. Although the statement from Vallejo police said they expected results in a couple of weeks, there has been no word of results so far. We shouldn't be discouraged, though. The effort to identify the Golden State Killer through genetic genealogy took more than a year, and a similar effort to identify the Zodiac could take even longer. And if the Seattle authorities can identify a killer 52 years after the fact, there's still hope for the Zodiac case. I believe we may be lucky enough to hear about a resolution to this case any day. First, We'll hear an announcement from the Vallejo police about an upcoming press conference. Then, we'll find out they've finally, after more than half a century, identified the monster who terrorized Northern California in the late 60s. And if we're really lucky, he'll still be alive and we'll get to see him in cuffs to face justice for the evil deeds he's done. The search for the Zodiac is not yet over. Tales of True Crime is written and produced by Troy Larson for Midwest Radio of Fargo-Moorhead. Follow Troy on Twitter at True Crime Troy. Voice of the Zodiac by John B.C. Shores of Avalon, Killers, Echoes of Time, Symmetry, Fire Prelude, Interloper, and Cryptic Sorrow by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io.